Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. This morning, we're going to be doing a, starting a little three-week ser- uh, series on the love of God in, in Christ for us. And um, I wanted to start it because uh, in, in four weeks, we're going to be coming back together as a church as one, and we'll be looking at the life of Joseph. Uh, but we have a few weeks to consider some other things, and this is what the Lord laid on my heart uh, during my time away uh, in study. And so um, I want to begin uh, by looking at this. And so I want to start with this question, a simple question, and that's this. What, what is the motivation that you have for obeying God? What motivates you towards obedience to God? And know that there's more than one correct answer here, but I just I want to put the question in front of you. I want you to think about that for a moment. What is, the, what is it that motivates you to be obedient to God? Maybe it's uh, fear of the Lord. Uh, that's a good one. It's certainly biblical. The Old Testament is filled with that motif, and it finds expression in the New. The fear of the Lord is a, is a good and proper biblical motivator for obedience to God. Maybe, maybe it's our love for God. That's also good. Maybe it's our sense of gratitude for what God's given us in the gospel. That too would be good. All of these are good, all of these are biblical, sound reasons, but there's at least one more, one more that I want to focus on. And in order to demonstrate it, I'd like to, before I just give you the answer, I'd just like to illustrate it, if I may. And I want to do it by uh, sort of contrasting two scenarios. I want us to imagine on the one hand uh, what it would be like for a very young child uh, who finds that they have disobeyed their parents and they feel really bad about that. Uh, Maybe uh, you're in a situation where that's fairly recent for you as a parent of a young child, or maybe you can remember that. Uh, For young children especially, I think that's more resonant because very young children look at their parents as really the first manifestation or expression of God for them. And so there's 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 an inherent reverence for mom and dad, and when they disobey, they feel bad. Why? Specifically, do they feel bad? I've answered some of that already, but let me just give you the other scenario before I answer it fully. Imagine that you, uh, maybe this is not hard to imagine for some of you, some easier than some than others, but imagine that you're uh, late to work or late to some appointment and you're driving a little fast. Have I lost anybody yet or is it hard for you to imagine? (laughs) Right? And you get pulled over and you get a speeding ticket. Now you feel bad too, right? Why? Well, so what do we have in common? We have, we have law broken, right, on both sides, and we have both parties feeling bad. But let's take, the, let's take the person who got the speeding ticket. Why do they feel bad? They got caught, right? They feel bad because they're going to have to pay a fine that they feel like they shouldn't have to pay. What they don't feel is remorse over breaking the law And here's why, because they have no relationship with the police officer or the lawmaker. They're completely foreign to them. They have no reverence for them, no relationship with them. They don't care about that. That's meaningless to them. 
On the other hand, though, the child has a relationship with mom and dad, a bond. And so when they break that law, when they break the heart of the lawmaker, they feel bad. Very, very different. So let's ask the question again. What, uh, what motivates us towards obedience to God? Yes, fear of the Lord. Yes, uh, our love for God. Yes, gratitude for the gospel. But more than that, God's love for us. Gratitude for the gospel is good, and all of these other things are good, but when it comes to our love for God, I can think of no greater cultivator for that love than an increased knowledge of of his love for us. That's what we looked at this morning in our call to worship. He, uh, we love because he first loved us. Now, we often say in church that God loves us, and of course, that's absolutely true. God does love us. But I wonder how much we've considered how much he loves us. And you might say, yes, I get that too. I have an answer for that too. Uh, He loved us enough to send his son to die for us. Amen. That's the gospel. That is the gospel. But let me just ask you a little bit more uh, distinctly. How much does Jesus love us? How much does Jesus love you and love me? So here's what I hope to do in the next three weeks, Lord willing. I want to explore just how much Jesus loves us, and I want to do it under two different headings. This week and next week, again, Lord willing, I want us to consider how much Jesus loves us by looking at passages during his earthly ministry. It'll be in John 13, as we'll see, and then hit the rest of his discourse with the disciples uh, this week and next week, Lord willing. And then in our final week, I want us to consider how it is that Jesus continues to love us even from heaven in his, in his, his uh, glorified state or exalted state in heaven. And so what I want to do is begin uh, with uh, the, oops, sorry, begin with the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 13. And as I said, we'll look at 14 through 17, just snippets of that next week, Lord willing, to see this discourse that he has with the disciples and draw out some of these things. And then lastly, we'll look at Hebrews 14, or or Hebrews 4, excuse me. There is no Hebrews 14. Hebrews 4 in the final week. So I want to read the account of Jesus' washing of the disciples' feet, though we will not be focusing too much on the bulk of the story. But let me just read it for context. Read um, uh, chapter 13, verses 1 through 20. Here's what it says. The word of the Lord. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if, you do, if I do not wash, your, wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, 
but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word, as we do each week, your inspired, holy, perfect word, your word given to us that we may come to know you, know what you've done for us, know your love for us, and know how we should respond. Would you bless us and be with us in this time? We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So as I said, I want to really focus most of our time on these opening verses, which sometimes we kind of skip over them to get to the heart of the story, and, and that's good too, but I want to focus our attention on these words. And so we see here that now before the feast, the Passover, when Jesus knew that his, that his, his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And what I want us to see here right away in verse 1 is that John wants us to see something. He's telling us of a specific time before the feast of the Passover. So we get a, a specific time, a time when Jesus now was aware, now knew that his time was drawing near to leave the world and again be with his father and in full communion with his father. Now, just pause here for a moment and think about this, because for most of us, what we're really talking about here is death, right? That's, that's what Revelation speaks of as the first death, not the second death. The gospel saves us from that. Amen for that. But for most of us, this is death, and much of that is, is unknown, and there's fear in that. But it doesn't have to be unknown. You see, the deeper our walk is with the Lord, the richer our communion is with him, even here, which means that when we face death, we would do it with a joyful anticipation of an even greater communion with our Heavenly Father. Think about it this way. Jesus never knew any separation from the Father throughout all of eternity. But in his incarnation, well, he gets to have some greater degree of separation, some sense of it. And that's enough for Jesus to demand that there be many times set apart for that, for, commun for communion, for prayer. The gospel's filled with accounts of this. And by the way, it's a good model for us as well. Just to give you one example from Luke. In those days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. For Jesus, 
communion with the Father was a non-negotiable, and he carved out time. He prioritized it. Jesus prioritized time, uh, prayer, and he didn't do it as a duty, but as a means to access communion with his Father, what we refer to as a means of grace, an access point to the graces of God, and prayer being one of them, the ordinary or normal means of grace that we have as the people. Everybody has that gift. That's not a special gift for some saints. It's for all believers. And if you don't know the sweetness of communion with God. And don't continue to abstain because you think God's going to judge you for having not prayed. Our Heavenly Father, your, your Heavenly Father wants you to commune with him. He delights in to do it. He knows you in his heart. Be repentant and go boldly before him in times of need for his abundant grace and mercy, as the book of Hebrews tells us to do. Seek that out because he has made that way for you. Now, I say all of that so that you can see that for Jesus, the news that he would soon be with his father again was deeply joyous. He delighted in this news that he knew the hour had come for him to depart. Think about Paul. I would, I would want to go and be with the Lord, but better that I stay for you, right? I want you to see this as a way of gaining some insight into the love of God for us in and through Christ. Imagine for a moment, if you will, just, just take a moment and indulge me here. Imagine that you, you live in a bad place, like a really bad place. Like the worst image of the slums that you could possibly imagine, a dangerous place, a dirty and miserable place. Maybe that's true for some of you, but imagine it even worse. But also imagine that you had just become aware, you'd just been given the news that in a very short time, you would be living as an honored guest in the most powerful and the most luxurious kingdom the world has ever known. Where would your focus be? Would you be thinking about the place you are, or would you be dreaming about the place you're going to be? Are you looking at me for, for an answer? <laughs> I, like, that's our propensity is to say, well, if there's a better place, I want to go there. And that's where my mind goes. And this is a place that Jesus, of course, knows. And so you can think a little bit about what that would look like for you. John wants us to see something here in verse 1 that's important for us to see. Jesus was now aware that he would be with his father again very, very soon. But John also wants to add a statement to us about the love of Jesus, the love that he has for us. In fact, he says two things about that love for us. We read that he, he loved his own who were in the world, and he loved them to the end. He loved them forever, right? Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, writes this about them. He says that his, this, this idea of his own, this phrase his own, it, it's not a term of ownership such that we were his property, although that's certainly true. It is true. Paul says that we were bought with a price, and so it's true. But instead, Goodwin says the focus here is, is to convey a deep, deep intimacy Think about it this way. We are his own as children are to a father or a mother. 
We are his own as siblings are to our elder brother, who is exactly who Jesus is. We are our own as a bride is to the bridegroom. It's a term of deep intimacy, deep closeness. He loves us as his own. But we also read that he loves us to the end. That is, he loves us forever, for eternity. And Jesus' love for us is an unwavering love. It doesn't change. It's not conditional. It's the very antithesis of that which is fickle in nature. It's constant. It's unchanging. It's unconditional. It's eternal. And so John is beginning to set up this story of the washing of the disciples' feet. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we're told that Jesus is now aware of his impending departure to heaven. John wants us to see this, his deep, intimate, and eternal, unchanging love for us. Now, in verse 2, we're told that they're already engaged in this Passover meal during supper, we read. And here John describes the impending betrayal of Judas with very strong words saying that the devil had already put it into his heart, the heart of Judas, to betray Jesus. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And I want us to just take a moment here to consider this betrayal. Because this betrayal is also an expression of the love that God has for us. It's a small part of the many, many sufferings that Jesus endured for us. And it was painful for Jesus as any betrayal would be, but maybe in some ways more painful. F.W. Uh, Cromacher, a 19th century theologian, describes this betrayal in very graphic and striking language. He says this, can there be a more appalling or deeply affecting scene than this treacherous betrayal of his master? Where did ever personified goodness and consummate wickedness, heaven and hell meet in more open and awful contrast? Scarcely can we support the overpowering impressions which we here receive of the superabundance of divine love and meekness on the one hand and the fullness of satanic wickedness on the other. We are witnesses of a parting scene, one of the most melancholy and mysterious the world has ever beheld, Jesus and his disciple Judas separated forever. Striking words to consider the, the depth of pain that this betrayal that Jesus has to endure uh, by Judas. One that he's aware of, of course, as the, it's explained to us in the text and more so in other places in the supper. And we don't want to gloss over this because we want to see this as part of Jesus' suffering, part of all that was necessary for him to be acquainted with every temptation and with every struggle, yet without sin. Now, we'll move to verse 3, but I want to read it as it flows in the text. So I'm just going to read verse 3, having read 1 and 2 first. It says this, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Assariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God. So G no, John is now telling us for the second time in just three verses that Jesus is what? Keenly aware of his impending departure. 
He has supernatural knowledge of this. And John tells us this, but with some new details in verse 3. Notice the language of inheritances here. The Father has given all things into his hands. And that he had come from God and was going back to God. And so we have all of this set up here so that we can see the wonder of Jesus' action. If you allow me a bit of license, as I hinted at before, we could say it a little like this. We could say that, that Jesus being uniquely and supernaturally aware of the glories and riches of heaven, the full fellowship with the Father, all things being given into his hand was soon to be with him. Jesus would begin to make plans for what he would do once he got there, or that he was so overcome with anticipation that he starts to daydream of heaven. No. (laughs) Right? Of course not. Knowing all of this, Jesus does what? He humbles himself in an act of servitude, an act of servanthood, but not merely to teach us to serve others well, though that's certainly built into it. In fact, this is an example that is really the very antithesis of the world. There's there's kingdom ethos in this, kingdom truths all over this. The first shall be last is the the idea that's built into this. Jesus loves us as his own, and we we can think of the image of the body here, of us as the body of Christ. He wants us to serve one another as members of his body. And this is something that he can do in his physical state and his humiliation that he cannot do from heaven, demonstrating it physically before them. It's not merely an exercise of humility, but an act of worship that we would humble ourselves toward other members of the body of Christ to which he is the head. And here's what we read. He rose from supper, and we get some details here, some preparatory details that I think are worth noting here. He rose from supper, he lays aside his outer garment, he takes a towel, he ties it around his waist, he pours water into a basin. And as I read this, as I was preparing and I read this, something struck me about this. I was struck by these details because they're inspired and in the scripture to tell us what? Jesus did this. Jesus did all of it. He didn't tell somebody else, one of his minions, can you go get this all set up for me so I can show everybody how humble to be? He just does it all. He does all of it in an act of humility. And this is something that is both deeply humbled by Jesus and deeply humbling for me and should be for us. Do you want to know why most ministers don't practice washing feet? Well, for one, there's lots of propensity for bad theology because weird, strange messages sometimes get connected to that. But for two, because it's really humbling. And we don't really want to wash strangers' feet. It's humbling. It was humbling then. It's humbling today. It's no different. But Jesus isn't simply demonstrating his humility, though he certainly is doing that. He's demonstrating that our conformity to him demands our humility. In other words, as members of the body of Christ, because of his great, eternal, and intimate love for us, we must be humble as he is humble. That's what it is to be conformed to him. 
So let's just quickly look at a few other passages. We'll skip a few verses here and just kind of get into the heart of it, to just to draw out a few other things here. When he had washed their feet, when he was finished, he put on his outer garment, he resumes his place, and he says to them, do you understand what I have done to you? I wonder just experientially how many of us have ever had that situation where we think, I don't know what God's doing. <laughs> Show of hands. I don't know what God's doing. I'm not really sure. And Jesus is asking the question, do you understand what I've done for you? Because in some ways, Jesus goes, I already know you don't really understand. And he explains it. And there's a certain humility and, and a sort of a lesson for us to take that we don't have to understand what God's doing for it, for it to be good for us. But he explains it here. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right for doing so. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Jesus, as the head of the body that is the church, is saying, I wash your feet, you are to wash one another's. I just, I want you to get a sense of that. This is what it is to be in the church. This is what it is to serve in the community of the church. We, we don't just show up on Sunday. We're to be in, in, integrated into one another's lives. We're, we're to connect with one another. We're to serve one another with great humility. Paul speaks of that in Philippians. Whoops. Well, look at that. Can you still hear me? All right, good. We'll deal with that later. So uh, I just want to move on. He gives us that example. Paul speaks of that. Here's what he says at the end of our passage. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So it's kind of an obvious question, but I'll ask it anyway. Many of us kind of know this. Many of us have heard a teaching on John 13 and the call to serve one another. We have the head knowledge, but are you doing it? Because if you're not doing it, then you're not blessed by it. You are not blessed by your mental ascension to the knowledge and understanding of what it means to wash one another's feet. You're blessed by doing it. And then we get some insight into God's sovereignty. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. The scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Does Jesus not understand your experience with betrayal? How often have you felt, yeah, Jesus doesn't quite get this one. This personal pain for me is a little bit much. And I know he kind of generally gets it. But no, no, he gets all of it. In fact, he knows it's coming because it's, it's part of Scripture. He knows that betrayal is coming. That doesn't make it any easier. It makes it painful. I'm, I would just ask you, take a moment. Think about a time when someone hurt your feelings, someone betrayed you. It shouldn't be all that hard because we're human beings and we know what it is. And we know what it is to betray someone else, sadly. Jesus is all too familiar, experientially familiar with betrayal. He knows that. It says it here. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So that's a, an encouragement. So when, you, when they see that Judas betrays him, and eats of his bread at the supper. Then they go, oh, Jesus said that was going to happen. He's, he, is, he is who he says he is. But he still endures 
the pain of betrayal. Truly, I truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one who I sent receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And this is a Trinitarian statement about trusting who Jesus is, not just in his own, but sent by the Father, and who will send the Spirit. Jesus knows your betrayal, to be sure. In fact, Jesus is, is not done with betrayal. When, he, when Judas betrays him, he still has to endure the betrayal of Peter. And really of all of the 12 who scatter and leave him. But we're told in detail of Peter's, and so Jesus knows all of this suffering as well. So let me just take a moment or two, if I may, to talk to you a little bit about this church. You might recall that at uh, the start of the year, I said to you that uh, we are a mission church. That's what we are. And that this year was going to be an assessment year for us as a church. We're a mission church, and we're charged uh, and gifted by Montgomery to not have to worry about the money part of being missional here in New Pulse, solely tasked with reaching the community of New Pulse for the gospel. But if I were to ask you how you think we're doing, what would you say? It's late August. We're a good two-thirds of the way through the year. Could you venture a guess? No one wants to answer that question. Yeah, not, not so well. Now, many of you have demonstrated some remarkable faithfulness in serving the church, and your love for the Lord and the church is clear. And I am personally very, very grateful for that. But we are still struggling struggling to reach the community, to be effective as ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you that in my time away, I've been really convicted about that. I've been convicted about my, my, my failures to, to pastor you well to that end. I should be praying for you more than I do. And I want to do uh, more time with you. I want to visit more Visiting is challenging, and sometimes we're, we're a kind of an isolated culture, and so we have to be very intentional about how we do that. And I'm realizing more and more that that doesn't just kind of happen. I have to pursue you. So I have to go after you and say, so I'm going to visit with you. <laughs> When's a good time? Um, and I need to do that, and you need to call me to account for that. I... I, I didn't do it when, when we had our time of prayer for one, for one another. That's normally when I do it. But each week I plug that we have a Tuesday night prayer, a time of fellowship and praying. Um, and I don't see too many of you here. Some come, but many don't. And if there's a better night, by all means, tell me. We'll, we'll adjust so that we can be a community. I don't see too many prayer cards offered so that we can be praying for one another. And that's striking to me uh, that we don't do that because that, if you think about that logically, here's what that means. I can only assume or deduce one thing. That means you don't actually value prayer. You don't think that filling out a card and having us pray for you is useful. You don't value prayer from your spiritual family. And let me just tell you, take a moment, look around. And we all have physical families that we hold in high esteem, and I do too. Uh, but these who are here, these are your brothers and sisters in Christ for all eternity. 
This is your spiritual family, like it or not. And I know, I know everybody's busy. Ask yourself a question. Ask God this question. Are you really that busy? Are you really that busy that you can't make time for the family of God? Is that busyness a legitimate excuse before God? If you could sit down with Jesus right now and explain to him all the reasons why you can't participate in the life of the church, do you think he'd say, well, in your case, you have a legit excuse? You think he'd say that? It's fine that you don't participate, and you don't participate for the foreseeable future until your circumstances change. And don't stress about changing those circumstances for any time, because, after all, you're really busy. Do you think that's going to matter in heaven when you stand before the Lord? Well, you know, Lord, that's where that sentence is going to end, in heaven. Whoop! You're not going to speak. The charge stands. So let's go back to the question. What motivates you to obey God? And I ask that question not just generically or, or not just in your individual life, but part of obeying God means engaging in the community of faith. The church, by its very nature, by its very definition, is corporate. You belong to the church. That means you, your life is integrated into the lives of other saints. And I can tell you right now, I don't know you guys well enough. I know you don't know each other well enough. Some of you do, but many of you don't. You see each other passing by on Sunday. Maybe you share a cup of coffee and some small talk, but you know your family more, and I don't blame you for that. But if, if you trust the scriptures are true, then this is your spiritual family. You may have aunts and uncles that you won't see in eternity, but the believers, you will. You're going to be stuck with us. <laughs> so you better love us, and we better love you. And that's a real charge, a real serious, serious charge. What motivates you to obey God? We mentioned several good answers, the fear of the Lord, the love for God, the gratitude for the gospel, but also a growing awareness of God's love for us in and through Christ. Jesus, who loves you as his own and loves you in an unchanging way for all eternity. And by the way, the single biggest concern that Jesus has for you is not your particular sins. It's not. It's not. Are you staying away from Jesus because you're struggling with sin? Uh, you wouldn't be a, a, an honest sinner if that answer is not yes. But Jesus isn't concerned about this sin or that sin. He's concerned about one sin. One sin above all others. It's not the deepest, darkest sin in your life. It's unbelief. It's the sin of unbelief. And if you live like you don't believe by not engaging the community of faith in obedience to what God calls you to do as a believer, you're acting as if you don't believe. And if you continue to act like you don't believe, guess what happens? You don't believe. You don't engage with the community of faith, 
and maybe you lax on your Bible reading, and maybe you're not praying all that much because you're not expecting that God's going to answer your prayers. And you're not elevating the Word of God as what it is, the very breath of God. Paul says when he preaches to, to the saints, he says that, that uh, you, I, I thank God that you didn't take my wor- our words as my words, but the word of God. If you're not participating in the body, that's probably what's happening. You're not in your word. You're not doing that. You're slipping deeper, deeper into the trends and, pre- and actions that, that uh, correlate with unbelief. You say, we believe, or I believe, But if you live as one who doesn't, you're a non-prayer, a non-reader, a non-participator as a member of the body of Christ. You're living as an unbeliever. See, church participation isn't a a, a thing for the super spiritual. You don't check the box and say, I I profess faith in Jesus Christ and I show up on Sunday. Good. Now, if you are professing faith in Jesus Christ and you're showing up on Sunday, but during the week you're, you're loving your family and you're showing them the truths of the gospel, then you're in a season when you need to do that. That's different. But you should be striving to be in communion with the saints. That's what it is to be the church. It's not for the super spiritual any read of the Bible makes this abundantly clear. Your participation, your fellowship in the body of Christ is a non-negotiable fruit of genuine faith. And there is no other way to cultivate your faith than through engaging the family of God in the local church. By the way, I've noticed that you know I like to get an amen, and I never get any amens. I got none, none for the whole sermon. Not one. Thought you'd have a couple stored up for me since I've been away for a couple weeks. None. I got none. I'm talking to you about the love of Jesus. And take a moment, drink that in. He loves you as his own and he loves you forever. That's an amen, but not just because I'm asking for it. I want the amen here because I want you to get a hold of this statement. There is no other way to cultivate your faith than through engagement in the family of God in the local church. Don't just say amen. I want you to pray. I want the Spirit to bring you under conviction. I, this is my family. I need to love them and live life with them. That's what we're called to do here. The God who loves you as his own forever wants you to love and be loved by others in his body for your growth and for your sanctification and for his glory. Serving in the church is a part of every believer's call. The question is not whether you'll serve, but how. So how will you serve Christ in this church? So here's what I want to do. I thought about putting up a sign-up sheet and guilting you into serving, but I thought that's not going to work. We've tried that before. But I'm weighing the conviction of where I'm coming short. So I'm going to put my email up here. And I'm going to start by asking you to email me if you would like a visit from me. And if you don't, I'm going to come talk to you and say, you need a visit from me. What's good? But don't make me do that. Why don't you reach out to me first? It's part of what it is to be the church to have your pastor pay you a visit and pray with you, spend a little time with you, read some scripture together, 
be the church, you know? <laughs> so email me, or I'm gonna have to email you. <laughs> but really, I want, I want you to, to we'll start here, uh, email me, give me some good times, um, and I would very, very much love to come and get to know you. I mean, we're a small congregation, and I don't even know all of your names, and that's a shortcoming on my part, and I confess that before you. That needs to change. And we need to be a church that, that lives with one another in faith. You're not too busy. And if you are, something needs to go. Because what's, what's happening right now is you're saying, I'm too busy, and the first thing that gets, gets removed is my church participation. Because the urgent things take precedent. But I wonder how much of that urgency is filled up at night with what you're doing right now, many of you. You're doing it for good reason. You're looking at your phones, but like, right? Or we're watching Netflix, or we're getting our downtime. Is it really edifying you? I do the same thing. I'm, I'm guilty of the same thing. It's, it doesn't feed your soul. You think it does. You think it's going to give you some rest and relaxation. You want to turn off your brain. But it's, you're turning off your soul. There's time. You're just not that busy. None of us are. We just need to be a family together. So reach out to me. Include your best times, days and times to, for me to visit you. Let me pray, and then we'll come to the table. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for what, you, what we've learned here, that you love us as your own. We are your children. We are your bride. We are your body, and you love us as your own, and you love us in an unchanging way for all eternity. May we experience that. May we taste and see the goodness of that, as your word says in Psalm. We thank you for that, Lord. May we love one another as you've charged us to do. And may we experience the blessing of doing that, not just knowing it. Grow as your church. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So we come to a, 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 the table, and it's really a, I don't say it every week, but it's a time of response. We've heard the word preached, the word uh, heard, and now we come to the visible word. The table is the visible word, the picture and demonstration of the gospel before us in sacramental form. And it's our time to respond to what we heard. When you come to the table now, you're responding to the love of God, the unchanging love of God for you the love of God to live a sin-free life in the fallen world. What Adam failed to do in an unfallen world and caused it to fall, the last Adam does in a fallen world without a bit of sin, not just in his actions, but even in his thoughts, and then dies on your behalf as a sinner. And that's how much God loves you. In fact, it's been said by many that, that the picture of the love of God finds its fullest, greatest, richest, and most beautiful expression in Christ. In Christ, the revelation of God, and the love of God is before you. And some say that, that the, the cross is what we call cruciform. It's where the, the, the wrath of God and the love of God come together, the, the perfect justice of God and the, and the love of God come together in the shape of the cross. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this visible word, this sacrament. 
We pray now that by your Holy Spirit you would set apart this cup and this bread for a holy purpose that they might become to our faith your body broken and your blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. We pray this in the name of your Son and our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.